Hello, it is Saturday. It's Saturday show time, this being the show. But you know what I like to call the show? Public school. East Coast schools opening. Welcome to the show, I say. No, I don't. I do. I stand outside of schoolyards and just yell at children. Welcome to the show, Rook. They're like, I don't understand your references. I'm nine. But it is back to school. Uh, you know, if you live in the South or the West or really anywhere other than my milieu, you've probably been back in school. But this is the traditional start of school in much of the country. So let's embrace it. Let's talk about schooling and education. Two great interviews. First, I will play an interview from 2017 where I talked with Lenora Chu. And I remember, I remember this interview. I remember one sentence from the book she wrote about her being an American family moving to China and encountering Chinese educational practices. And the name of the book is Little Soldiers, an American Boy, a Chinese School and the Global Race to Achieve. And you'll hear her say this, one generation plants the tree, the next sits in the shade. I think about that a lot when we talk about how unfair the accumulation of wealth is or the wealth tax or Thomas Piketty, or why should people from a lower strata have disadvantages? All true, but then I also think about for most of human history, the idea, not so eloquently expressed, but lived was one generation plants the tree, the next sits in the shade. Is that so much worse than a Pickettian, if you will, idea about how the world should go? The other interview I'm going to play is from 20, oh, sorry, the other interview that I'm going to play is from 2016, because even though it's back to school, you might want to go to the box office. You don't go to the box, well, you do, you kind of go to the box office and see a movie. What I'm saying is you might want to see a movie. You might want to go to theater and see a movie. And how do they, you get into the theater, you engage with the box office, and then you, anyway, what I'm saying is I interviewed Hadley Freeman. She is the author of Life Moves Pretty Fast, the lessons we learned from 80s movies and why we don't learn them from movies anymore. Interesting, provocative, nostalgic. I got to think back about where the box office is. Is it placed in front of the movie? Is it more of a synecdoche of all forms of payment to the movies? I'm really torturing you. Just want to hear this nice interview from 2016. The name of the book is Life Moves Pretty Fast, the lessons we learned from 80s movies and why we don't learn them from movies anymore. Hadley Friedman. Enjoy these two interviews. We've all seen the headlines in the news of how someone lost their life in an act of cold-blooded murder. And while it's sad and grabs your attention, most people go on with their day without giving it another thought. But have you ever stopped to think about the life of the person at the center of the news story? They were more than just a headline or a statistic. They were someone's loved one or friend. I'm Mike Morford, and my podcast, The Murder of My Family, dives into some of those stories to help listeners get to know the person who was lost and how their death affected those closest to them. Listen to The Murder of My Family everywhere you listen to podcasts. There are well over 100 episodes to binge on now. In so many works of literature, an egg is a symbol. And in this work of literature, well, it's not literature, it's nonfiction, the egg becomes symbolic of a parent's struggle with a child and a school's insistence that the child do things their way. The name of the book is Little Soldiers, an American Boy, a Chinese School, and the Global Race to Achieve. Lenora Chu is the author. She's the boy's mother. 
and she's going to tell us about the egg. Let's start with the egg, and then maybe we can go back and talk about the school itself. Sure. The egg represented so much for me. So the first week of school, my son is pretty much the only American in a Chinese state-run kindergarten. Teacher Chen lined up the 30 kids in her classroom and forced them all to eat eggs. My son, being who he is, spit it out, and on the fourth time, he had no choice but to swallow. Okay, a couple things. You said force them all to eat eggs. Of the every other Chinese kid in that class, would they have felt that they were being forced to eat eggs? Good point, and that's where the cultural differences yeah, come in, yeah. right? <laughs> so what was egg eating like in your house before the four times My son and hated. down the hatch? My yeah. son hated to eat eggs, and the Chinese think it's very nutritious. It's just a requirement of every child. Yeah, and, how could and, you not eat eggs? Exactly. Yeah, and this wasn't an allergy thing. There was no sense that this would be bad for him. The kid just hated it. You had a certain way of trying to convince him to eat eggs, which is through logic and the recognition that nutrition is good for you. And the Chinese had an entirely different way. Which is teacher knows best. Yeah. Now, now let's talk about the school. The school is the kind of school that, as you say, celebrities and party apparatchiks and everyone is dying to get into. And you got into the school. You got your kid into school. So you thought that was that you had arrived. You and Rainey had arrived. That's right. Especially, you know, when you hear the wait list is a mile long and people are jumping through hoops, you often want whatever that thing is, Mm -hmm. right? But the experience was very different. Well, well, so tell me how you got into the school. Well, there were a lot of casual walk-bys to see if, you know, the gate happened to be open and we could spot the principal. There were a lot of phone calls. There was a lot of networking with people who were already in the school. I mean, we really tried everything. And I think it was really just luck. One day they sort of called us after we'd left some pathetic note, you know, with the guard. And they said, you know, are you looking for a school? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Why we are. We laid the groundwork and then it all worked out. Now, when you say we, I think it's important to get into the dynamics of who the we are. Tell tell us about you and your husband. And uh, you sent your he- husband actually on the mission that worked. That's true. So, so tell me all about that. I am Chinese American, born and raised in the U.S., went to Texas public schools, but I am a Chinese face, right? My husband is blonde haired, blue eyed, and he happens to speak Mandarin because he spent some time in the Peace Corps in China in, in his 20s. So the Chinese are really fascinated by people who look like bona fide foreigners, like my husband, who speak Chinese, so I sent him on a mission. Right, right. It seems to me that they sort of take it as a compliment that a guy who looks like him would speak Chinese, and they take it as an insult that a woman like who looks like you would speak Chinese the way you do, which is probably not as good as him. That's (laughs) true. Right, right. They really love the idea of Caucasian foreigners who look like my husband taking an interest in the culture. Was your interest in the school just that it had a good reputation, as you say, and that people wanted to get into it, or did you do research about the methods and what kind of teaching would be going on? You know, at the time, and you still see the research, you know, bilingualism makes you smarter. Yeah. And, you know, we just like the idea that he would learn Mandarin, which is the most spoken language in the world, alongside, you know, learning English from us. And it just seemed like a great idea at the time. Yeah. And Shanghai was making these, uh, making lists for being the best education system in the world or among the best, that this was the best school of the best education system. And oh, by the way, it was free. That's right. Yeah. 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 So what's the downside? No brainer. Okay. So you get into the school and you You had to anticipate that there'd be some culture clash. Was it just bigger than you imagined or was it in ways you hadn't imagined? You know, I'm an optimist. I always thought that I was going to be able to get the teacher and the principal to see my way. You know, the asthma inhaler. Where do we keep the asthma inhaler for my son? It needs to be close enough to the classroom that he can access it in case of emergency. The teacher say, no, it needs to be kept in the nurse's station. But it's 20 minutes away. You know, all of these things, should there be an air filter in the classroom? Should my son have to lie still at nap time for two hours? Hours, even if he'd outgrown the nap. It became very clear to me the Chinese 
really value group over the individual. Whatever individual need that I had, it was not worth discussing. Right. So was either side right or wrong? And that is why I began to wonder where on the balance should this lie? Because once I started to sort of, I wouldn't say submit, but just trust a little bit more that the teachers knew what they were doing, I saw the benefits. Right. So tell me if you either uh, played it in the book in a certain way for maximum impact. But in the beginning, I was a little surprised that it did seem that you asserted your Westernness so often. There was maybe a line or two where you said, look, I knew I was in America and this was China. It was different. But in the beginning, when there was so much tension over almost everything, I didn't find too many instances of you saying you kind of surrendering to maybe they know best or maybe even if they don't don't know best, it's not true that I know best. That's a great point. And you know what? It's because the Chinese are insecure themselves, too. They they think that we in America have a few things figured out. You know, they weren't going to bend on the asthma inhaler. They weren't going to bend on the egg eating. But certain things like how do you foster creativity? That's what they're looking to the U.S. for. And because they had this insecurity, I sort of had confidence that they were sort of moving in the right direction. And this was sort of a school that is on the forefront. Teacher Chen was clearly authoritarian and very old school. She was in her late 40s. But the next year, there were, we had a younger teacher, and, and she had a lot more um, traits that I could I believed in. Over the years, did they ever warm up to you and even ask you for ideas about creativity or ideas that they could tap into that American they think Americans do well? My son's second teacher, she was really interested in what we did at home in the U.S. And, you know, here's a great example. He had a tennis coach in the U.S. and he had a tennis coach in China. And the Chinese tennis coach, they would just sit there and drill forehands for three hours. And by the end of three hours, my son had a killer forehand, but he also hated the sport. Right. And so we do certain things better in the U.S. because you mix it up a little bit. You mix up a drill with some, you know, some footwork and then you throw in a game so that people get the competitive and the fun aspect of it. The Chinese aren't quite there yet. And this was still an intense lesson. It's just how you break down That's the right. intense tennis lesson. That's right. 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 And so the Chinese, they really are like, how do you get your kids to love learning, even to have fun? Fun is not really a word that's part of the Chinese culture. It is just starting to be. But these were the cues they were looking from for, for me. I would also imagine if you're at their point where they are developmentally, their method is probably better. And maybe in the 1850s, America wasn't all about fun either. You know, it was about building a country and building up our young people and discipline and almost no leisure time. I love the idea that genius means struggle, right? Because in the U.S., we think genius should just come naturally. Some kids have it and some kids don't. But in China, my son has totally internalized this idea that if he works hard enough, he can achieve anything. And I didn't have to teach him that lesson. It's around the way the culture talks about hard work and Effort. It's around, you know, what the teachers say to him when he's not doing well in the classroom. It's about working harder. It's not about, oh, you're so smart or this kid's not smart. I love that lesson. And so I think we should learn that here. People would love that. But can you have a kid who believes that without shoving the egg in his mouth four times without and you didn't you mentioned nap time. But they hold you down from nap time, don't they? Yeah, so that... They literally restrain you. So this is a story about extremes. The Chinese swing so far off the deep end in some of these things, in testing, suppressing a child's will and making them nap. You know, they haven't really learned. They don't have access to Dr. Spock and all these things that we read about here. And they're just now learning. The Chinese really believe in early rigor. You set kids on the right habits and path to discipline, and then you let go. It's not about helicoptering, as you might think. Mm Mm-hmm. 
You also in the book expose, there's an expose element to it, as much as American parents might valorize Singapore math or the Shanghai methods, there's a huge downside. There's flat-out corruption in the Absolutely. Chinese system. Tell yeah. me a little about that. <laughs> Around Chinese New Year, which is a huge gifting time for teachers they and call anyone. It New Year. In, yeah, yeah, important in your <laughs> life. You know, I hear all my the parents sort of planning elaborate gifts. Louis Vuitton, Prada, you know, coach. And I bumble my way through trying to attempt a coach purse, and the teacher basically rejects it. And I realize that coach was last year, now it's Louis Vuitton, and next year it's Tory Burch, <laughs> you know. So there's a lot of money swirling around in the system. That's, that's because Chinese culture values gifting but you couple it with this high-stake system where you have to take a test to get ahead. You have to educate yourself well to get ahead and move into the next level of schooling. And you see teachers and administrators returning the favor somehow with a better seat in class. There's back doors for admissions. Mm -hmm. And this is a problem. Okay. There are extremes of essentially bribing a teacher with a Louis Vuitton purse. However... In that society, teachers are held in really high esteem. And in America, they're certainly not. And it would be better if in America that they were. Granted, they take that a bit too far, but I don't know that I wouldn't trade the overall esteem that the Chinese have for the educator, for uh, where the educator stands in America. So you like the Chinese way that they respect the teacher? Definitely. I mean, yeah. think about how teachers are talked about in America. They're just these people who are, you know, taking our money because of their pensions and they're looked down upon and they're just civil servants punching a clock. I'd like to have two months off in summer also. You know, so I gave my book talk in San Francisco and one parent yelled out from the audience, I decide whether to respect my teacher. And I'm thinking we have to start somewhere. And the Chinese, you know, there was a survey that came out in 2014. They hold teachers on the same social status level as doctors. Imagine that. Yeah. And the government knows you have to increase teacher pay. And that's actually a line in their um, their latest national education reform plan. Heighten the social status of teachers. They got something figured out there. What has been the consequence of your book for your son's education? He is sort of a little superstar, you know, in his Shanghai circles. But what about the teachers? What about the schools? Do they know to treat you a little carefully? Here's my question. <laughs> Are they moving the asthma inhaler within a five-minute walk? You know, it's funny. So his teachers now are, I'm not writing about his teachers now, and I'm worried that they think I'm sort of this sort of stealth detective that's watching their every move. Yeah. Um, but I'm sort of moving on to other topics. Yeah. Let him think that. It might be it yeah, might work that's out true. for you. That's true. Just a little bit of fear, right? Yeah, just a little I'm bit. Throwing it back your way. You just, watch out. Yeah. They might give it during a uh, <laughs> awkward parent teacher conference, just like lick the tip of a pencil and go, interesting. Just and write it, it down in the notebook. Just, yeah. yeah. Just like mm, scratch the chin. The name of the book is Little Soldiers, an American boy, a Chinese school, and the global race to achieve. Also, a uh, Chinese American mom, and her name is Lenora Chu. She was with me. Thank you, Lenora. Good to meet you. Thanks, Mike. Every generation has a certain place in its heart for the music, the media, and the movies of its youth. And it's hard to disaggregate the quality of the movies from our feelings about the movies. That said, the films of the 1980s, which is to say the films of my youth, the films of the youth of my guest, Hadley Freeman, were kind of special. They were also inclusive. They appealed to the sportos, the motorheads, geeks, sluts, bloods, wasteoids, dweebies, dickheads. They all adored them. Anyone get the reference? Anyone? Well, if you don't, the title of Hadley Freeman's book might also elude you, Life Moves Pretty Fast, The Lessons We Learned from 80s Movies. Hello, Hadley. How are you? 
Hi, Mike. How's it going? Pretty well. So I was from Ferris Bueller. Was that <laughs> was that the? I know Ghostbusters. Like like with me, Ghostbusters might have been the seminal movie. But how high up mm. is Ferris Bueller in the firmament of important eighties movies for you? I really can't separate Ferris and Ghostbusters. To be honest, they're both definitely my number one films, not just of the eighties, but of all time. A commonality between the two of them is that the antagonists were actually right. Like, I know they represent the establishment, but the EPA really did need some oversight over Walter Peck needed some oversight over that ghost containment thing. And, uh, Absolutely. And, yeah, and the principal, what's he doing? He's chasing down Ferris. Mr. Rooney. Cu- yeah, Rooney. Mr. Rooney. We all know what happened to Jeffrey Jones in real life, but, yeah, <laughs> yeah. but Mr. Rooney was yeah, doing yeah. his job. Not doing it well, but doing no, his job. It, it's true. It's true. One of the things that makes me laugh so much about Ghostbusters of the 80s is that the Environmental Protection Agency is the bad guys. And Rick Moranis' character is mocked for drinking bottled water. Uh, meanwhile, the Ghostbusters are walking around town smoking while carrying massive nuclear reactors on the back. And they're <laughs> the good guys. You kind of think it would be very much the other way around in a movie made today. People talked about that as kind of a bro movie. And yeah, you talk about all the male bonding and actually pointing out how they never sold each other out and had each other's back. But I always thought that that movie was a lot more gentle than the other seminal, what we might call bro movies, bro comedies like Stripes or like Fletch or the other ones that were a little more aggressive and relied on uh, put downs. Absolutely. And I think it's one of the reasons that Ghostbusters is much more popular than Stripes, uh, even though stars two of the main leads, obviously Harold Ramis and Bill Murray. In Stripes, the guys are quite aggressive to the women. And to be honest, the humor, as it often did in a lot of those 80s comedies that haven't really lasted, gets a little bit rapey, for want of a better word, with men just kind of like pushing women towards the bed. Um, it's also in Bill Murray's other earlier comedy, Meatballs, where he does basically just push a woman down on the floor and start making out with her. Whereas in Ghostbusters, what saves Bankman from being completely obnoxious, I think, is that he knows that Dana, played by Sigourney Weaver, is so much smarter and sophisticated than him, and he's likes it. And he's also a little intimidated by her. And she's not scared to put him down. Like when she says that line to him, you are so odd. It's like suddenly puts the audience on her side rather than on his side. And the audience goes, yes, he is odd. Yes, he is kind of bullying his way into your apartment like a freakazoid. Yes, Dana, you're right. We can see him from the outside. And I think that's a really important twist in the film. Yeah, it is. It's not rapey. It's a little creepy. The film starts with him uh, putting his finger on the scale of what's supposed to be a scientific experiment just because the girl's pretty, trying to get a date with a subject. Extremely unethical. Yeah, and literally giving some other poor guy electric shock treatment. I mean, (laughs) if that was played by anyone other than Bill Murray, and obviously it was nearly played by John Belushi, Dan Aykroyd had written the role for John Belushi, it would have been a very different character and a very different movie. Uh, Bill Murray can make almost anyone charming, but I think even he needed Sigourney Weaver's character to help him with that character. You know, you don't write about Stripes too much, but one of the things that makes that not less than a great movie is that after the uh, scene in The Proving Ground, after the quick black fox jumped over the lazy dog scene, the movie falls apart. And it's exactly like Full Metal Jacket in that way. The, yeah. the training, <laughs> the, the boot camp parts are a compelling study of a subculture. And then the war parts just become a very Derrigor war movie. Yeah, exactly. And you can kind of see that they didn't really know what to do with the movie beyond the male bonding. Whereas in Ghostbusters, they just keep the male bonding throughout the film. That's what's so great about it. It goes straight straight to the end. They don't get bogged down by plot. The plot happens around the male bonding. 
Now, in several points in your book, you quote executives and experts essentially saying about a beloved movie of the 80s that couldn't get made today. And at some points I agreed and at some points I disagreed. It's very hard to know, but I don't see how you could argue, one could argue that, say, The Karate Kid could not get made today. It was made in the 80s, but it was also made in the 70s as Rocky, and it kept getting made as The Karate Kid. And then there are other movies that, you know, like, could Inception get made today? It was, and it kind of blew us away. But I think to put your, your finger on it is the kind of movie that couldn't be made today is the comedy that was daring, the comedy where the characters aren't clearly recognizable stereotypes, where the main characters aren't, you know, stereotypically beautiful. That's the kind of thing that couldn't be made today, the high school comedy that broke those molds. Yeah, the high school comedies where the kids don't look like models, basically. That doesn't get made anymore. That's not being made in the 90s. Obviously, Karate Kid could get made today because it was made today. It was yes. made with Will Smith's son. And, you know, Back to the Future probably could get made today. It would just be an incredibly different movie. Um, when I talked to the director and writer of that for the book, they said that, you know, you'd have a movie with lots of special effects, but it wouldn't have the sweetness and the heart, and it definitely wouldn't have the kind of creepy love story between Lorraine and her son, Marty, and Lorraine's trying to sleep with her son unknowingly. None of that would happen, and that's kind of all what makes Back to the Future feel special, that it's not bogged down in CGI, that it is very specific in its dialogue and very daring, like you say, in its plot. And in terms of the comedies and stuff that wouldn't be made today, I mean, things like when Harry Met Sally, would that be made today? I honestly wouldn't bet on it because, like as I say in the book, the reason movies have changed is because they're now not made with the American or English-speaking market in mind. They're made more with China and Russia in mind. And these are why we see lots of superhero movies and things like Transformers or Avengers or whatever, movies that don't depend on dialogue and plot because those are obviously very hard to translate for international markets. What are made now are big, huge budget movies because movies take a lot more money to market overseas now and you need to globally advertise them. So you need movies that are guaranteed to make hundreds of millions of dollars that aren't difficult to translate for foreign audiences. And that's why we don't see movies like The Breakfast Club, which is very specific in its evocation of the American suburbs in the 80s, or movies like, you say, like uh, the kind of the comedies that don't star beautiful, perfect-looking people. Yes, but in the 80s, Stallone was making stupid movies, Schwarzenegger was making stupid movies. It's not like we lacked for stupid movies. <laughs> and stupid movies, like, I, I have no problem with stupid movies. You know, I've memorized, I think, every single one of police academies, including the last one, Mission to Moscow, which I can still recite when drunk. Um, there's, there's nothing wrong with stupid movies. I have no problem with stupid movies. But I do think we've lost movies that have, have funny dialogue that you still quote. I mean, what decade movies do you quote as much as 80s movies things like, things like first viewers day off i mean we you were quoting that ahead of the show and there aren't movies made with that kind of dialogue in mind anymore because that dialogue doesn't really get written for movies anymore you don't think the apatow movies come close oh god <laughs> you know i really, i do like the apatow movies i loved 40 year old virgin i thought that was adorable my problem with the apatow movies is that they present a very weirdly reductive vision of, of masculinity, basically, and male friendship, and most of all, of women. And I wouldn't mind it in, like, one or two of his movies, but then he keeps doing it over and over, that men are these kind of reluctant man-boys who are forced to grow up by these kind of shrewish women. 
And the argument that actually his movies are feminist because it shows the women are grown-ups and the men are children just doesn't hold water because the men are always more fun in his movies and the women are always pains in the neck. Well, he, um, well, he made, so, tra- he made no. train wreck, so that was He made train wreck in which the conclusion the is that for a woman to keep her boyfriend, she has to get fired from her job, dance like a cheerleader, and literally break her ankle. So I wouldn't <laughs> put it up there in terms of glorious <laughs> item in terms of great feminist statements of the 20th and 21st centuries. Maybe the difference is why Apatow doesn't go down as smoothly for you is he is making those movies about man-child or, you know, men, people who are in their 20s or 40, you know, per the titular 40-year-old virgin, who are behaving like children, whereas these movies that you loved were actually about children. Well, I think the other difference is is that when you look at Apatow movies, and I don't just want to pick on Judd Apatow. I mean, I would also look at the Hangover movies and all those kind of those bromances, as they're called now. What's so striking about them is that the men in those movies always have the more powerful jobs, they're the ones who earn money, and the women are, you know, are the less powerful ones. They often don't work. They often stay at home. They're the housewives. They're the secretaries. They're somehow professionally inferior. And it's a really jarring thing once you start to notice it. And when you look at 80s movies, that's really not the case. I mean, we've already mentioned Sigourney Weaver. You know, she's a classical cellist, if I remember, in the, in the Ghostbusters. But the Ghostbusters are these basically unemployed scientists. You think of Moonstruck, where Cher is an accountant, or Nick, and Nicolas Cage is a baker. Raising Arizona, where Holly Hunter is a police officer, and Nicolas Cage is a convict. Over and over in 80s movies, the way they get around this is they give these women these very powerful jobs, and men are slightly inferior. And that keeps the balance more steady. I also think that there uh, was more, it was a more realistic depiction of class, people of different classes. Whereas, I think the Judd Apatow movies, and I think he's one of the best, I think he's one of the best in doing really good movies, but he also does this thing that you always see on sitcoms that it would be so discomforting to the viewers to set it in a house that's kind of small and uncomfortable. So they're all living in these pretty palatial palaces, just like the TV show Friends. It's supposed to be comforting. Whereas, uh, okay, John Hughes movies were often set in leafy suburbs, but then later John Hughes movies were, you know, he depicted people from the wrong side of the tracks. He consciously wanted to do that. Very much so. That's a major part of John Hughes' film because he himself grew up lower middle class in an upper middle class area. So he always had this enormous class consciousness that is repeated over and over in his movies. Whereas Judd Apatow films and most movies made today show very upper middle class people. And again, this comes to selling it to farm markets in that the idea of American class issues aren't treated in movies anymore today. It's just not seen as relevant to the foreign markets, and it's not seen as something that people want to watch. So, Hadley, you're a day job. You write for The Guardian, right? Mm-hmm. And you cover, right. you cover culture? You write about movies? I do culture, politics, anything that's interesting, really. So I would assume that people come through, sometimes these movie stars, and you talk to them. Maybe they're sitting down with you or on a junket. I'm just trying to get into the process. So you're t- you talk to them about the latest project, and then what? There's a time I'm four questions in where you're like, look, I just got to ask you about Pretty in Pink. <laughs> Pretty much so. I mean, one of the main reasons I wanted to write this book was so I could go around and ask all my childhood heroes about these movies. And then as it happened, I also interviewed Judd Apatow and also Diablo Cody for another movie. And I mentioned it to both of them. And neither of them really wanted to hear about it, like that their films, I felt, had anti-abortion messages. And I understand that. You don't want to have some mouthy hack sort of criticizing your movie. But I just thought, this is something people really don't see, and I need to look at this more, because it, it can't just be abortion, the fiction of abortion that's changed in the past 30 years. I bet it's other things, too. And it was. So that, that's how the book came about. 
what other uh, either stars or directors or people you've talked to really cottoned to your questions about movies they did 30 years ago and which ones pushed back? <laughs> well, um, one person who really got excited about it, uh, the first one was uh, Eleanor Bergstein, who wrote Dirty Dancing. And I tracked her down when I decided to start writing this. And I said, I called her up and I said, you know, I've just got to ask you, is, is your movie really actually just a massively pro-choice message? Was that why you did this? And she sort of gasped at the other end of the phone, and she said, I've been waiting 30 years for someone to ask me that question. And I thought, wow, this is something real. And then I started calling basically everyone who I grew up watching and loving. So I called up Ron Howard. I finally tracked him down. And I said to him, you know, I love your 80s movies so much, you know, things like Cocoon and Splash. Do you think they could get made today? And there was this long pause, and he said, you know, I, I really don't think even I could push them through today. I have just realized that this is something that these people are all seeing, people who are still working in a movie business, who have been doing so for 30 years. And it's something that people don't talk about. There are real changes, and there are actual reasons for those changes. And a lot of that is economic, and some of it is social. And it's something that I, I wish people would see. Hadley Freeman is the author of Life Moves Pretty Fast, The Lessons We Learned from 80 Movies, and Why We Don't Learn Them from Movies Anymore. Thank you so much, Hadley. Thank you so much for having me. Corey Wara is the producer of The Gist, and Joel Patterson is the senior producer. We'll talk to you on Tuesday, given the holiday.